Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing, brought to you by Livewire Markets. I'm your host, David Thornton. Today's guest is James Gerrish, one of the most followed contributors on Livewire. Subscribers might know him best as author of the Daily Matchout Report, but that's certainly not the only hat he wears. He's also on the tools, running money at market matters across portfolios specialising in growth, income, international equities, domestic equities, emerging companies, and global macro. In today's episode, we discuss the value in holding short-term views when long-term investing, the signals that matter most, and the stocks and sectors with the best risk-adjusted return. If you're an Apple Podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or, if you're a LiveWire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post new content. Not a subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. All right, James, thanks for joining us on The Rules of Investing. Thanks for having me. You're probably best known to LiveWire subscribers um, for your daily market note, uh, The Match Out. But you're also a portfolio manager running high conviction funds. Um, how do you manage both of those hats at the same time? The, the challenge for what we do is, uh, is consistently writing about our views on the market, having a view on the market, uh, writing about what we're doing in the market on a daily basis. There's a lot out there that sort of write about what happened yesterday. Um, there's a lot out there that um, you know, cover um, or put out what they want their uh, readers to, to, to see. They put snippets out there. We're putting it all out there. So, um, you know, from, from my point of view, that's a challenge, but it's also, you know, it keeps your finger on the pulse on a daily basis. And that's what, you know, from my point of view, actively managed portfolios for outperformance is all about having that finger on the pulse, seeing the incremental changes in the market on a daily basis and having to write about that and articulate it to a, um, you know, a group of subscribers who question your views, um, who... Uh, give you plenty of uh, real-time feedback around how you're going, how you're approaching the markets, whether you're getting, you know, the calls um, right on the whole. Uh, you know, it, it sets up a really different environment than any, anyone else out there has. So, um, you know, we started the business eight years ago or, or thereabouts, and um, it's a different business, it's a different model. Uh, but we've got subscribers and now investors that seem to like that, you know, that active approach and also that. Um, communication on a daily basis around what we're doing and why. So are you arriving at those daily views wearing a long-term hat? No, you've got to, I mean, I, I approach the markets as a long-term investor. So we've got the view that, um, you know, investing is a long-term game. Investing in equities uh, is a is a long-term game and it, and it gets great returns over time. It's proven that, you know, the equity market is the best place to invest if you've got that long-term mindset. And then it's, um, you know, bringing that back to a more granular, um, you know, day-to-day thing and looking for changes in, changes in trends, changing in market mentality, changing in positioning around the market that, um, you know, ultimately long-term trends are formed by changes in the short term. So having that finger on the pulse in the short term is really important to sort of navigate the markets from a long-term perspective. So I've got a long-term mindset around equities being a great asset class to be invested in. Uh, and then I've got a you know, more short to medium-term mindset around how we should be 
positioning portfolios to capture that upside over the long term and you know, trying to be in the right um, sectors in the right time, the right stocks at the right time. Um, and that's you know, ultimately the, the, the name of the game. And if you do it right, you get consistent outperformance um, of the market. And that's, where, you know, that's the holy grail. That's what we're all trying to achieve with a mentality around risk. So um, you know, my view being a little bit more active, I think can actually be an a, 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 um, important thing to reduce risk across portfolios rather than just being you know, tracking the index, if you like. Yeah, I mean, markets are noisy in general, um, but they're certainly the noisiest, um, you know, hour to hour, day to day. When we're talking about the session, what is noise and what's an event that matters in the long term? That's a, that's a really good question and one that you, over time, you get to understand what matters for a particular stock, a particular sector or the market generally. So, um, you know, noise, what, you know, if I think about noise, I um, instantly think about headlines in a newspaper. Um, you know, by the time they're on the front page of a newspaper, the market's already digested it, priced it and has moved on from it. Um, you know, the news cycle creates a lot of noise in the market and there's no, um, you know, information out there is really prevalent. So, um, when I was uh, putting market matters together, there's this you know, over the past eight years or so, there's been this evolution and availability of content. So when we first started it, we're, you know, more, we're providing content that, um, you know, the, 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 the normal content of what the market had done, et cetera, but that has evolved over time. That's now free. So you've got to go above and beyond that. You've got to provide um, your real market insight, your, your take on the market. You've got to, um, you know, have the fortitude to go out there and write about your views and put yourself out there um, to be you know, criticised and tested and all of those things. So to have confidence in doing that, you've got to do the work in forming those views. So um, you know, I don't sit here and um, you know, proclaim to have the keys to the market. No one does. But I think it's you know, that, that, that evolution about being able to see what, or, or, um, you know, see what, what is noise and what really matters for the companies that you're invested in. I think that's the real key. So does a data point really matter for the company that you're invested in? Um, or not, and that's the you know, that to me is a really important aspect of what we do. So, what would an example of noise in today's market be? So, an example of um, you know noise. So, obviously, banking crisis gets a lot of uh, airtime in 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 the recent past, and um, you know you think about there's always going to be uh, references to the GFC, but there was clearly uh, you know there was clearly differences to what the GFC was and what uh, regulators were prepared to do this time around. So this was a crisis of confidence. It wasn't a financial crisis. There wasn't, you know, big wide ranging ramifications like the GFC. So regulators proved that they were, you know, um, keen and willing and able to act swiftly to, um, you know, support financial markets with the tools that they've got available, which are more than they, that they had back then, or create new ones. So. Um, you know, to me, that would be an example of, of recent noise. Um, when you think about, you know, on a, um, you know, the, the banking sector in Australia is always um, very much exposed to a lot of, um, you know, media noise around um, what they're doing and why. But you need to sort of distill that down and understand what really matters for a bank, which is, um, you know, the security of the, 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 the borrower they're lending to and the availability of 
credit and the, the, the ability to write a profitable loan. So, you know, in that, to me, what matters in banks at the moment, you think about there's a lot written about um, the inverted yield curve over in the US. Um, you know, you dumb that down and you think about how banks operate, they, um, you know, they lend long and borrow short. If the long-term interest rates are lower than the short-term interest rates, they have an issue. Um, and that issue can evolve and it can um, you know, crimp their willingness to lend. Uh, and that, to me, you know, reduces the availability of capital in the system. Uh, and that can have wider ramifications for the economy. So it's about um, you know, not looking at the headlines, but really understanding the drivers of the earnings of an underlying company, a sector, um, et cetera. So that, that, to me, is the difference between what you know, a headline is and what really matters for a particular sector. You touched there on the banking crisis. Do you think deposit flight, depositors pulling money out, sending it to money markets overseas, especially, uh, is an example of noise? Or do you think that is something that is going to impact on on liquidity and, and markets writ large? Yep. So it's, it's understandable why they would do that. But that comes down to have they got confidence in the bank they're putting their money in within. So um, in Australia, not so much. I think Australians are you know, we're really confident in the strength of our banking system. It's a, it's a different system in the US. Um, so, you know, we've got four major banks and some regionals and then some, um, you know, uh, lower tier lenders. Over in the US, they've got thousands of banks. It's not new that banks fail over there. So, um, you know, they're a riskier proposition. Um, they've, you know, Silicon Valley Bank was a, very much a technology exposed um, bank. Uh, they had issues with how they managed their interest rate risk across their book. Um, there was a, you can point to a heap of risk factors over there. And ultimately, banking is about confidence. You lose confidence and, and, and your depositors move away. And if you can go and get, um, you know, if you can go and get, put your money in a two-year uh, bond over in the US market and get 4% and you know it's safe and secure, why would you take the risk of putting that, those funds in a non-guaranteed um, deposit at a bank that's got balance sheet issues. Uh, it, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a real, um, you know, confidence in the market is, can't be underestimated. So, you know, the market's all about, it's a collective of, of individuals, um, you know, and confidence is really central to that. So, um, you know, I, I really, um, you know, over in the US, it's, it, was, it was really critical to what, what played out over there. When you look at the various sectors and asset classes, um, what signals are you looking for? What signals matter? So in terms of, um, you know, if I think about equities straight up, I think positioning is really important. So how the market is, how the collective is positioning around equities. So, um, you know, there's, there's lots of scenarios that um, you can point out around crowded trade. So, um, you know, using historical um, uh, trends that we've seen over the, the past six to 12 months or so. You think about the, the decarbonisation trade where everyone's buying, um, you know, focusing on ESG. Um, you know, that was a, a really interesting trade around positioning and the market focusing on a theme that's still got a long way to play out. Um, when I think about, um, you know, in, in more recent times, cash levels from fund managers in the market, etc. So, um, you know, if the if, if fund managers are really nervous, the market they're positioned defensively and they're holding high amounts of cash, and bad news comes along, you're not going to get the same reaction as if everyone's bullish the market and invested in the market. There's 
Um, you know, the incremental sellers simply aren't there. Everyone's positioned for that. Um, I look at derivative flow. So how are, how are um, uh, institutions, you know, how, the, how are the derivative markets pricing risk at a particular time? So it gets, I get concerned when the market is all universally one way on a particular theme or a particular stock even. So uh, when I open up my Bloomberg and look at, you know, a stock and the analyst coverage on it and every analyst is universally bullish on a stock, um, that concerns me. In terms of um, you know, fixed income markets, it's all about you know, what the outlook for interest rates uh, is uh, and how participants are pricing risk. So um, yeah, it might be relevant for a lot of domestic focused income investors in the hybrid market recently. So we obviously had um, issues with Credit Suisse and the um, complete wipeout of their hybrid investors. Um, how that played into Australia was that you know Australian hybrids were trading at a margin of um, you know this is a, a you know, major bank five years to run to first call trading at um, you know two point two percent over the ninety day bank bill that's a that's a really low margin for the risks involved in that so um, you know to me that means that everyone's really complacently long that that space um, and it's reverted back to about three percent over which is probably a more palatable yield for the risk take that as an investor you're taking on in those securities. But um, so I think positioning and market perception around what's playing out on the external environment is really um, important. So those, the one thing I'd stress is around crowded trades. Do you put as much weight as other people do in the inverted yield curve or do you focus more on the shorter end of the curve? Yeah, I think it's an important factor and for the reasons I just spoke about in terms of the banking space around... Um, you know, the future availability of uh, liquidity and financing, et cetera, for, um, you know, economies to, to grow. I think you've got to be a, a little bit, um, you know, I, I don't like putting caveats on things and I hate saying this time is, is different, but because it generally is not. I mean, that's a, that'll, that, that comment will slap you in, your, in the face time and time again. Um, but there, there has been a huge amount of central bank support and, 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 and um, uh, a huge amount of central bank activity within bonds um, and the, you know, the, the, there would be some influences on the yield curve as a consequence of that. But ultimately, yes, I think, I think you know, what the yield curve is pricing is that conditions from an economic standpoint are going to get tougher. Um, and I think that's right. I think in the very short term, the market has probably got a little bit ahead of itself. Bond yields um, have probably come down a little bit too much. We're pricing in um, too many, well, you know, we're starting to price in interest rate cuts this side of Christmas. I mean, the, the central banks have clearly made the, well, a, a moving towards a pivot. We've probably pivoted in, in here in Australia with the RBA, you know, capping, you know, putting rates at 3.6 and I think that'll be the, the, the extent of it. Over in the US, we might go another 25 basis points, but ultimately we're near the peak in in, in this um, cycle of interest rate hikes. So, but the market's now aggressively pricing in interest rate cuts, particularly over in the US. I think that in, in the near term could prove to be wrong. Yeah, uh, I was about to say, I mean, that those, those yields have really come down despite what Powell keeps saying about, you know, no cuts anytime soon. Yeah, I guess it, it, it's balancing a variety of views in the market. So um, there's some out there that, um, you know, obviously think that um, there is going to be a, a really tough economic hard landing. So you wait 
positions according to that, um, and that's what would be pushing those yields um, lower. But from a you, know, you drag it back to a, you know, a, a here and now from an, in, you know, an individual investor standpoint, my read on that is that um, having been really bullish on um, you know, technology stocks, for instance, um, now's the time to be transitioning um, you know, slightly away from that area because I think in the very short term we'll have a uh, recalibration in bond markets and bond, mar- bond yields will probably move higher. I think the risk is bond yields go higher from here rather than go lower, even though central banks are clearly at the, you know, at the, the pivot point in terms of official interest rate hikes. It's all about what the market is pricing and I think the market is probably wrong on that at this point in time. There seems to be this general idea out there that long-term investing should be informed by long-term views. And I guess the corollary of that is is that short-term views are really just a distraction. Is this the wrong way to look at it? Well, I think long – we've got a long-term view in terms of, um, you know, investing, but I think, you know, short-term views are really – important because they you know things change in the short term that will impact or should impact your long-term positioning i you know i think about how what gets spoken about the markets and written about the markets and stocks and you know to me one of the the biggest mistakes that investors have so whether that's you know fund managers advisors analysts uh etc um is is thinking they they know better than the market that that my thesis is um, you know, my thesis is is picking out something that the market's not seeing. That I've got better access to management. I've got better insight. That I'm smarter than the collective. The collective is always, you know, the market is always right. And don't ever, um, you know, um, you know, forget that the, the the importance of the market. Because once by the time your thesis is proved broken, you know, the the stocks probably move 60 percent on the downside or whatever their number is. Um, and I think it's having that uh, humbleness to know that the market is always the, um, you know, the, the market will always prove you, um, will always be right or wrong. Don't fight the weight of money. So um, when I approach the markets, I'm really um, conscious of how the market is pricing something. So it's not a, not a case of, um, you know, we're out there trying to buy stocks um, at a price and sell them at a higher price. Um, we're about trying to make them the best return on an incremental um, unit of risk. Um, this concept that investors proclaim out there, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, it's just not our view that we're out there owning a piece of the business, that we've got to think about it as business owners. Well, we're, we're trying to get the, um, we're trying to make money out of a movement in share price. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to. Um, I'm not sitting around the boardroom table making capital allocation decisions um, at, at BHP or West Farmers or, or whatever, whatever it is. So I've got to be really conscious about what's playing out in the short term and how that could impact those companies and my investment in those companies. Um, you know, to me, that you know, we're, we're, we're part owners of business. It's, it's you know, probably marketing BS. It's, it, it's not what the average retail investor cares about. The average retail investor cares about ultimately making the most amount of money for the least unit of risk that they possibly can and that's what we're doing trying to help them uh, on that journey so you think good investing is more a game of inches not yards not you know putting everything on black this investment thesis and just hoping that it comes good a hundred percent it's also 
Um, it, it is. It's about structure. How you how you, it's about structure and consistently applying approach um, over long periods of time. So um, there's there's a big movement that um, there's, there's a heap of literature out there that says that um, you know, active management is is dead. We all should. Um, uh, put money into index funds and we all should track the index and that's the best approach to do it. No, I, 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 th there's a lot of validity in that rhetoric because it creates a structure, it creates consistency in what you do and it, it creates a you know, repeatable process. You're ultimately buying those stocks that are in the index and there's, a, you know, there's, there's something that um, consistently gets applied over time and I think that really works. I think from my point of view and my observation would be um, that people are engaged in the market when things are going well and they become disengaged when the market is um, you know, not going as well. It's that consistent consistency in, in getting up every day and doing, this, doing the same thing you've done yesterday and the, the, the same thing you'll do tomorrow, having a really defined structure in how you um, create portfolios and how you manage them and doing that over and over again. And that, it's not going to work all the time, but it will, if, if you've got an edge and you consistently apply it over, over time, that's when you really see the benefits of, of, of your process in terms of the outcomes you're achieving for portfolio performance. And um, you talked about you know, conviction and um, not putting all in black, or, but we're not also about you know, having 100 stocks in a portfolio. We're about having a... You know, th these are our views in the, on the market and this is how we'll enact our views through a portfolio of um, you know, 20 stocks, for instance, um, and we think we can get the, the good balance of um, you know, risk, versus return, risk versus return and also having an intimate understanding of what matters for each position in our portfolio. I think it was Buff <coughs> I think it was Buffett who said uh, diversification is insurance against ignorance. Yeah, I mean that's that that's we're that, I, I I agree with that, but we're we're also it's important to note that we're all we're not all Warren Buffett, um, and these these again, there's a lot of um, Buffettisms used for, in marketing spin, um, and uh, you know I think you've got to be you've got to understand what you are as an investor and what you're not, and if you're not engaged in it, and you're not um, you you you're not there on a on a daily basis, then perhaps an index fund is is better. But if you are engaged in it, um, then you've got to put in the work, and you've got to um, and you're trying to outperform the market. You've got to be consistent, come hell or high water, whether the market's going well, whether the market's not going so well. And it's those times when the market's not going well that you really, um, you know, that 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 consistency in getting up every day and, and publishing a, a, a newsletter, um, updating views on stocks. Um, publishing a portfolio from you know that that, that updates performance every twenty minutes. Um, that is a you know that's that that's real transparency in in what you do. Um, but I think it gives you that structure and it gives you that um, you know the process that you do every day, which I think is uh, which is really important from our point of view. And I think over time it's proven to be a, um, a, you know it works for us and the the people who are investing with us. You touched on tracking. The index. Do you think the index can become um, a scapegoat for poor performance? So uh, the the you've got to always anchor 
when you're thinking about performance, you've always got to anchor it to the risks that you're, um, you know, you're taking on to achieve that performance. So whether that's having a portfolio that um, underperforms the index by an average of um, you know, 5% per annum, but it has uh, such a, uh, but it has significantly less risk than the index. That's not necessarily a bad outcome. Um, I think the index is, you know, the way we approach portfolios. So if someone invests with us, we'll create a custom benchmark that we need to be across um, that is weighted that to their asset allocation and what they're trying to achieve in their portfolio. So to me, looking at arbitrary index, um, you know, we measure ourselves on a monthly basis and we publish it. Um, uh, you know, our returns relative to an index is a yardstick. But ultimately, from an individual investor's standpoint, you need to have a benchmark that you want to be above all the time as a yardstick so you can continue continually um, look at your portfolio and seeing if it's meeting the objectives it's setting out to, to achieve and where you need to be. So um, that's probably one of the most important things I've done in the last five years from a an individual portfolio management perspective is around having these, you know, these these customised benchmarks relevant for an individual investor. Let's move to the market today. Um, which sectors, at the moment, in your view, are risk on, and which are risk off? So, I mean, your, your typical, um, you know, risk on sectors are a technology, for instance, when the market's bullish. Um, you know, in terms of uh, resources are all about economic growth and the outlook for economic growth. Um, banks, I think, have got a reasonable element of risk. But, I mean, you can't, it, it, it's a hard question to, um, you know, what sectors are a risk on. If I look at, so if I look at, say, an infrastructure stock that is, that's now priced for perfection. I mean, the, 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 the last um, change we've done on portfolios yesterday was, exiting transurban for our income portfolio. Now that's a super high quality business, infrastructure companies on the ASX are few and far between now. Uh, we've held it for a couple of years, we've made really good money out of it, um, but it's now trading at a, you know, it's, it, it's yield relative to Aussie 10 year bonds is trading at a premium of 60 basis points. Um, you know, it's premium over the last 10 years is 2%. Am I getting paid enough at 60 basis points over and above um, you know, risk-free uh, bonds enough for me to hold the hold that position, uh, and you make the call of no. So to me, that you know, those really expensive areas of the market are probably more risky than um, at, at the moment around pricing um, than than stocks that are unloved and out of favour. So you think about a you know um, a Dexus where I've walked down the Barangaroo and there's a heap of office space in um, the city. Um, they're the country's largest office landlord. Um, you know, is that a risky? Is that a risky business right now? We look at it in face value and say probably, but it's trading at a forty percent discount to its um, you know, the value of its underlying assets. Um, to me, it's all around risk. Is all around price. So what's built into it? Um, I don't think many people would say that. Um, you know, last year was the ESG thematic risky. This is the, the great big shift that we're all making. Um, we're all going to be more, um, you know, responsible from a from an ESG standpoint. Go and buy ESG portfolios, etc. That created the. It was a great marketing ploy, um, but it created sort of really 
dislocated pricing in that area of the market and it became crowded in terms of, of positioning that market. And to me, that creates risk. So I'm not about what sectors are inherently risky. Of course, you know, something with a really predictable defensive cash flow, um, you know, a regulated utility like APA Group, that's a, you know, that's a low risk proposition. Um, but it's all around the pricing and what it's priced at at a particular time. I'll try to hold you to it. So where are you seeing the best return at the moment um, for the risk, uh, be it on a sector thematic or stock basis? So I'll look at the investment landscape right now and you, you, know, you start with term deposits and you can get 4%. Um, you know, uh, investment grade um, debt, you, you, know, you can get 7 8%. Um, you know, equities are back down to their historical PEs. So from a valuation standpoint, we're back down to historical averages after being really expensive for a long, for a long period of time. So I think the investment landscape is a really good one. I think you know, that, um, the, 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 the concept that there is no other alternative to equities that was playing out a couple of years ago is now completely changed. You can get great returns out of lower risk portfolios now than you could um, a couple of years ago. So I think from the majority of investors out there, this is a great landscape to be investing in. It's more balanced. Um, we've had a, a huge amount of imbalance in our system over the past um, few years. Interest rates now are back to more average levels. Um, so we can now position, you know, more balanced portfolios that are getting good returns that are not taking on huge amounts of, of risk. I think the one area of risk that I'd point out is um, private markets, unlisted assets. I don't think they've seen the revaluations that the listed environment has said so has seen. So all of these um, investors out there, and I see it from um, you know, operating in the industry where people are gravitating towards lower volatility private assets because they've had a period where volatility's been high. So the one way to stabilise portfolios is, is put in unlisted assets that don't get revalue, revalued on a daily basis. And you don't have that change in your, the influence on your portfolio returns on a daily basis like a bunch of listed investments have. So to me, that the, the opaqueness in that market is probably a little bit concerning. Um, would I be out there buying unlisted assets at the moment? Probably not. I like the transparency and the the, the, the liquidity and the um, you know the clarity and pricing and performance that listed assets have. So we try and populate portfolios with um, simple listed assets, and I think that's an you know the environment we're in right now is a really good one for it. You know, when rates are on the up and financial conditions are tightening, it seems you know the investors in equities go to high high yield credit. The investors in high yield credit go to um, IG credit. Those in IG credit go to money markets. Um, do you see the pendulum now swinging back the other way? Hopefully, all those new Bitcoin investors <laughs> come into the equity market. If that was the last category down, I didn't down include. the risk curve um, because of the returns. I think, um, yeah, I mean that that's not necessarily a bad thing. If you, one of the mistakes I think investors make is always trying to seek the highest return possible. I mean, it's about having a really balanced approach that's suitable for your the outcomes you're trying to achieve. And if I can take, if I can look at a return, I, I need to get eight percent out of my diversified portfolio, um, and I can, you know, because of what's played out in, I can, I can, you know, to do that, I've had to go 
into the um, lower grade, um, high yield bond market to achieve that. But now I can stay in the investment grade space. I'm not going to stay in the high yield space. I'm going to go down to the investment grade space and capture the same return as I as I need. And I think that's an important thing from a individual investor standpoint to always look at your portfolio, how much risk you're taking on to achieve the outcomes you're getting. And if I can reduce the risk to get the desired outcome, I should. Um, and that comes into, um, you know, from you know, asset allocation and all of those things are really important from the bigger picture standpoint. Um, but then from a portfolio perspective, if I can get a, you know, a, a really strong return from a more from actively managing a safer large cap stock than, inv than, than investing in you know, really you know, volatile mid cap stocks, why wouldn't I? So, you know, AGL Energy was a, a, a position that um, you know, we bought six weeks ago and it's up 25%. And you go, you know, that's a, to me, that was a low risk investment in a large cap stock, but you can generate strong returns out of large cap stocks that, um, that if you have a focus on timing. And I think that's one of the, the things where we try and add value is around timing the entry and exit of the positions we take on. Do you think the funds management industry does a good enough job at conveying to retail investors the risk they're taking? You know, I go on all these websites and, and you know, you see the three-year return number, but to, to really appreciate the risk you're taking to get that number, you've got to dig pretty deep. Um, do you think, and, and you mentioned before about understanding, you know, the risk you're taking to get the desired outcome. Um, do you think there's there's a gap there between when investors, the risk they think they're taking um, to get that return number? Short answer is yes. And I think the, the thing that improves that from the person looking at a fund or, a, or whatnot is, is the transparency that they provide. So... The communication that they're uh, giving to the investors within the fund. I think, you know, the, thinking back about an example over the, um, you know, we've got new clients on board that are very heavy into, you know, funds that are exposed to growth companies. Um, and these are, well, they've bounced in the last 12 months. They've had a diabolical last couple of years. And I think having a handle on what the macroeconomic environment is dishing up can be really helpful in, um, at the very high level around asset allocation. So, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there that you know, discount the macro. So, you know, the macro environment is, I, I don't have any insight into the macro, I'm just focusing on my you know, DCF models and I'm going to focus on company valuations and that's how I'm going to invest. But I think the macro is so important and it's so um, overlooked by so many investors, which is just silly. I mean, you, you think about from an asset allocation standpoint, when you know, 12 months ago, the cash rate in Australia was at 0.1%. If I've got the, the, the smallest interest in the macro environment, I'm thinking about interest rates, are they going to go up or down? Are they more likely to go up or down from there? If my conclusion is they're more likely to go up, then I'm not going to be, I, I don't want to be you know, massive, heavily involved in fixed, you know, fixed rate bonds. An average, you know, the, the, the typical balanced portfolio in Australia would have 30% allocation to fixed rate bonds. I mean, that, that's just a simple example of how having a simple view on the macroeconomic climate can really change the outcomes of a portfolio. So, so the view that, the, no, the whole notion that because you can't 
might not be able to predict macro, um, you should just discount it. You think that's a cop-out? Absolutely. And it comes down the risk-reward. Is the, is the risk that interest rates, at 10 basis points, is the risk that interest rates go up or down from here? And how should I manage that risk across my portfolio? If I overlay, a, um, if I overlay the 10-year US bond yield um, with the NASDAQ, has interest rates declining been a positive or negative for, for growth companies? So when I, when I see a fund manager's performance report, that's very heavily into growth companies, they're all about growth, and interest rates have started to rise. I'm looking at their three-year track record, which is phenomenal, but I'm thinking about, gee, that's in the context of interest rates have been falling over that time. What happens when interest rates start to rise? So there's very, you know, fun, you've got to be conscious of what the fund manager's focus is and what, where they invest, whether they are, um, you know, are they very, are they ironclad into a particular um, area of the market, which has been, and, and fund managers are, t- are very slow to move, slow to change their belief in the market, and it, it, it ties back into, um, you know, thinking that um, it's hard. It's hard they, to market a changing view. Absolutely, you've got to be. You've got to be true to what you. It's not about changing with the wind. It's about, um, you know, if your strategy is we are rusted on um, high growth investors and we're targeting. Um, companies that are growing their top line at 100% per annum year on year. That's if that's what they are, and that's what they are true to label. That that that's absolutely fine. But if I'm the end investor, I need to understand that, and I need to make asset allocation decisions accordingly. Um, yeah, my my view on portfolios, where particularly for retail investors who are putting money into a portfolio, they want the best possible return through through um, you know, through through different cycles. So we're managing a growth portfolio, but we're trying to get the most growth out of whatever trend is prevailing in the market at the time, whether that be technology or whether that be resources. We're looking to pull because markets are, you know, markets um, evolve and their focus changes. And um, you know, back when interest rates were falling, the focus from an investment standpoint, those companies that were growing the top line at any cost were getting re- rewarded. Um, and, and now, as soon as interest rates start rising, those companies are no longer getting rewarded. It's the companies that are generating earnings that are getting rewarded. Um, so you've got to, you've got to, you need, that, that's why I guess having an understanding of the short-term trends in markets are really important and how that plays into your long-term positioning from an asset allocation point of view um, at, the, at, the, at the high level. And then from a portfolio management perspective, what positions, stocks, sectors you're populating your portfolios with to try and optimise those returns for the end investor. So in, in reading the macro, it sounds like it's less about predicting specific outcomes and more about um, you know understanding the balance of risks and investing accordingly. Absolutely. It comes down to what matters, you know, um, and what matters for, so if, you, if you're owning gold stocks, what matters for a gold stock? The gold prices, you know, for any 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 uh, commodity company, really, it's the underlying. You get the underlying commodity price right. Ninety five percent of the time, you'll get the underlying stock price right. So back in you know September of last year, the U.S. dollar index, so the U.S. dollar against the basket of its major trading partners, um, was at one fourteen. 
Gold was at 1,600 an ounce. You know, today the US dollar index is at 102 and the gold price is above 2,000. So the US dollar, the fate of the US dollar is critical in determining gold prices and therefore the outcome of gold equity performance. Um, in terms of um, you know, energy markets, it's a, you know, there's, 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 you know, with commodities it's, it's supply and demand, but sometimes supply matters more than demand and sometimes demand matters more than supply. And I guess that's you know, having that finger on the pulse on the, the, the daily basis helps to form those longer-term views and medium to longer-term views in the market, um, which you know, will ultimately dictate the performance outcomes you get. So it's um, yeah. So then how do you pick your exposures at the company level? How do you pick the gold company to go with, for instance, based on what you think the gold price will do? Yeah, re- I mean, research, right? So it depends how much risk you want to take on. So the, the, the lower risk exposure into gold are the larger players. The higher risk exposure into gold, they've got the smaller cap players. They've got more operational leverage, but more can go wrong. So it comes back down to um, you know taking on the lowest possible unit of risk to get a particular performance outcome. So you know, our gold holdings now in, across our portfolio um, you know, we've got Newcrest, which is lovely to be bid for, um, and we've got Evolution, but it's mainly around what the gold price is doing rather than what the companies themselves are doing. I keep a handle on them operationally, and all gold companies in the last while have had operational issues, but um, I, I, you know, you, 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 do, you, you look at them operationally and how they're performing, but ultimately the determination of that will be the gold price. And I don't, I don't sit here and say that I've got, um, you know, huge insight into the workings of each individual gold, um, gold company and the, you know, strip ratios and all of those things. I simply don't. James, what's one thing investors should be scared about in today's market? There's a heap. So <laughs> <laughs> let's hear it. No, it's um, if I'm putting my, you know, if I'm focusing on one thing that they should be scared about, it's it's. It's crowded trades, so um, being on the being on a crowded trade, I think, is a really scary thing because it can change very quickly. And if you don't have your finger on the pulse, you'll be holding that because you've you know, you've fallen in love with it, and it's um, um, you know it's been a, a core part of your portfolio, and you think it's going to the moon, and it may become a really crowded position, and it, it can change very quickly. So, you know, examples examples of that. You know, is is probably the ESG trade, but that's probably more retrospectively. Another example would be um, the property trade at the moment. I think the market is still universally negative on the property um, side. I spoke to Dexas before; it's trading at sort of forty percent below NTA. These, that's a position we own that hasn't started working yet. Um, we've only, you know, we've added it around current levels, but it's still, it hasn't started to move. Um, you know, Centuria is another position we're actually down at it's in our income portfolio. We're down about 23% on that position. So we're wrong on it so far. Um, but I think that, that, that negative positioning around property um, will give way at some point. Um, in terms of, you know, another recent example would be retailers. I mean, I, I think the belief is that as we approach what... Dr. Philip Lowe says is not a mortgage cliff, but is clearly a mortgage cliff. 
um, that uh, it's going to really crimp you know, demand for discretionary spending. I mean, that, that might be the case, but it's such a well-spoken about, well-discussed, understood thematic um, that I simply can't... I, I don't think it'll have the influence that the market believes it's going to have. Um, so to me, I think probably retail is a place to start um, you know, incrementally adding to portfolios. Now, I don't have, we don't have in our growth portfolio, we don't have any exposure to retailers yet. Uh, we have some exposure in our income portfolio to West Farmers because I think it's a stock that will take advantage of the, you know, any turbulence in the space. Um, but I think those are sort of, you know, trades that you can, um, you know, nibble away on. I think, you know, everyone owns banks in Australia. Um, so, you know, crowded positioning, banks are all, always crowded in terms of um, retail investors. I think there's a real... I don't want to. I, I don't want to be negative after the horse has bolted, and we are as, as as stocks come down. We've had an underweight position in the banking space. We're, we will slowly go to sort of a market weight position in the banks, but the the trends around um, you know interest rates is is to me is is going to be an impediment to bank earnings uh, going forward. Particularly now, we've got such a competitive environment for to capture all these loans rolling off. Um, that's that's probably a crowded trade that still I think is going to take a while to work itself out. When we talk about crowded trades, um, is every trade in a sector necessarily crowded out? Um, you touched earlier on in the conversation about um, defensives like infrastructure. Um, you know, we hear a lot about how these defensive plays are crowded out, but are all of them crowded out? Or is it just sort of the the name brand stocks? Yeah, I think you've got to look at you've got to be prepared to look at companies that have got warts on them, so that that they may not be performing as well as others right now, but there's a pathway for that performance to improve. I touched on, um, you know, AGL Energy is an example of one that we've bought recently. Um, I, you know, APA Group is a company that we really like, but you've got to really pick your time around when you buy it. So. Um, you know, sub ten dollars, I think, is a, an area that you'd go and buy something like that. Transurban, it's trading at fourteen seventy at the moment. Um, to me, that's a you know a, a stock to sell. So it's it's not a case where um, I think the the trades that get spoken about is is um, you know the, the the ones that you have to own are probably the crowded trades, and I think you've got to go a little bit more left field to try and unlock um, trades that are less crowded. It's not saying just buying crap that, that's been sold off. It's, it's got to have a catalyst and a path to improve. Um, so no, there's always, I think there's opportunities out there from a risk reward perspective that stack up all the time. I don't, I don't sit here saying I need three incomes, I need three infrastructure stocks in our income portfolio because it's important to have infrastructure in that portfolio. Um, I simply don't buy into that. I don't say the market weight of banks is twenty odd percent. We've got to have twenty odd percent in the portfolio in banks. I don't, I don't buy into that at all. Um, I think the, you know, the most controversial trade from calendar twenty twenty two was, um, you know, the coal trade. We were, we, we, we were, you know, early on the coal trade, um, and that was a, you know, really unpopular move. But 
that's been our best trade in years. Um, so I think you've got to go. You've got to go a little bit out of the box um, to to try and um, you know get the returns. And they don't always work. You've got to be quick to realise when they're not working. Cut them. Put your hand up and say we're down twenty percent on this, but we don't think it's going to improve. Let's get out of it. James, we like to finish these chats with uh, three favourite questions. Um, bit of a thought experiment. Question one, what's the one thing investors are getting wrong about today's market? I think their expectations that rates will be cut this side of Christmas. Um, so I think I think that's, I think interest rates will be, I think the interest rates have, have peaked. Um, and I think this, these are you know, official um, cash rates have peaked. But I think they're going to stay higher for longer. I think this expectation that rates will be lower um, you know, in the next seven, eight months um, is, won't prove to be accurate. And the money market will sell off a bit. Correct, yep. Bond yields to go higher in the short term. There you go. Question two, could you share a story of a big win or loss in your career uh, and what did you learn from it? Um, you should. I mean, it'd be the way to talk about wins, but I'll, I'll, I'll go. A, a loss would be um, we had a really. This is back in two thousand eighteen. We bought some. We bought bonds in a com- company called Access Today, um, a, a finance business growing really strongly. Um, and I think what we got, and they ultimately went into administration. A couple of lessons out of that was, as a bond investor, you um, you care differently than an equity investor. So this was a really strong growth company um, and you don't really want to own the debt of a company that's growing so quickly um, and is sort of backfilling there. You want to, you want to, you want stability in um, their operations. You don't want them to be not growing, but you don't want them to be growing too quickly. Um, a couple of things. So we'd, we'd written about that in the newsletter. I'd owned it in portfolios. Um, and I learned a lot in that uh, environment. I learned that it's really important to continually when something goes wrong continually answer questions about it write about it and be proactive in trying to still get a positive you know as positive an outcome as you possibly can so we became active in trying to um, get a class action going and um, trying to you know restore some value for investors so um, you know to me that was an important and we've got subscribers and investors that um, whilst they lost you know, 70% of their money or 65% of their money. It was a 4% weighting in our portfolio. So we've, you know, it's, it's, it's not a good thing, but it's not a, you know, it's not a, um, a terminal thing. It's important to continually own your mistakes and communicate and, and make sure that people are across it and what you know they know. So um, that was probably the, the, the big lesson I've had in the last few years. Um, I'll go back to, you know, big wins in coal trades last year was a was a really good one. We went against the consensus and all the the, the really strong wins that we've had in um, in uh, in investing is sort of going against the grain. That's the the one lesson I'd, I'd I'd probably pull out of those when I when I pull apart all the things that we've made money on. It's you know, going against the grain has been the big wins, but ultimately it's not about the big wins. It's been incrementally banking dollars um, as you go. And I think that's the sort of the, the basis of our approach. If markets were to close tomorrow for five years and you could only own um, shares in one company, which company would it be and why? 
Well, I've heard this question asked that from <laughs> others, and um, yeah, you know, I thought about what I'd what I'd what I'd say when I've listened to the, the, this, and it's it's sort of like you can. You know, w- it's purely hypothetical. What we do you do not what, recommend a one stock portfolio? No, no, exactly right. It, it's um, it is. So, what do you want out of a, a, a stock? You want some different attributes to it. So, you want some defensive qualities to it. You want a little bit of growth. You want to be able to sleep at night because you can't do anything with it for five years. You don't want. You know, it's important to me that I don't blow my money up in five years. So, I want something that I know will be there in in five years. That's not as. Um, it's not as influenced by the ebbs and flows of the economic environment that can change. So I'm going to go something really boring, but I think it's got those attributes, and that's Telstra. We own it in our income portfolio. It's not going to make you rich, um, but it's not going to tear your money up either. And I think it's got those as one stock from a, the attributes that you look for in a portfolio. It's having the different, you know, the, the defensive qualities with reoccurring earnings, and it's got some zing about future growth it's got infrastructure that can hive off um, and i think the next ultimately the next five years will be better for it from the than the last five years so i'd sleep at night as well holding that <laughs> the ultimate all-rounder the, ba- <laughs> the batter and the ball i know it's, it's a bit of a cop-out telstra's uh telstra's but it's it truly it's been a, it's been a quite a really good investment for us over the last couple of years is it a tech company oh they'd like to say it is i mean it's um, in my own experience, I mean, I started a newsletter and now I have a digital advice company because it sounds better and hopefully <laughs> someone will pay a high valuation for it. So that's the, um, it's, it's all about marketing and all about, so they're, they're, they're certainly putting themselves up as a tech company. That's for sure. Uh, James, this has been an amazing chat. Really enjoyed it. We'd love to have you back on soon. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with James Gerrish. If you did, please give it a like and don't forget to subscribe to livewiremarkets.com. We'll see you next time.